My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Christy Belcourt. Indigenous languages and traditional knowledge are central to efforts by Indigenous nations on this continent to decolonize. The imperative is not just to preserve, but to revitalize, to move from the current situation in which many Indigenous languages and much traditional knowledge are at risk of being lost forever, to one in which there are increasing numbers of language speakers with increasing fluency and an increasing breadth and depth of traditional knowledge. Language is central to this process. Indigenous languages are not simply collections of different words for exactly the same ideas you would find, say, in English, but rather, in how they're organized, they encode distinct ways of understanding and relating to life and to the world. Indigenous languages are woven together with all of the other elements that are central to the distinctiveness and vitality of Indigenous nations, from the entire breadth captured by the phrase cultural practices, to systems of governance, to understandings of right relations among all of us who make up the world, to the land itself. In the current moment of Indigenous resurgence, there are many ongoing grassroots experiments to find innovative ways to bring language and traditional knowledge to Indigenous youth and to other Indigenous people who have been denied them by colonization. Christy Belcourt, most widely known for the Walking with Our Sisters exhibit of moccasin vamps in honor of missing and murdered Indigenous women, is a Métis artist and one of three members of the Onaman Collective. The other two members are Isaac Murdoch and Aaron Consmo. The collective members are artists committed to bringing together, quote, land-based art activities with traditional knowledge, youth, elders, and language, end quote. And they go on to write, the three of us will combine our skills for art and land-based community learning, collaborations, and community-based gatherings that center on art as a way to transfer knowledge of traditional teachings and language, end quote. Their efforts so far include using the building of a birch bark canoe as a focus for sharing traditional knowledge with youth, bringing youth together in a language house for a four-day immersion experience in learning Anishinaabemowin, or the Ojibwe language, and a rich range of other kinds of gatherings and activities. Belcourt talks with me about the importance of indigenous languages and traditional knowledge, about the approach the collective takes to bring language and knowledge to new people, about the various things that they've done so far, and about their big plans for the future. We spoke by Skype to phone. My name is Christy Belcourt. Uh, I'm a Métis artist who lives north of Manitoulin Island in a town called Espanola, Ontario. And I am part of a three-person artist collective called the Onaman Collective. I was raised in Métis politics, you could say. My dad is Tony Belcourt, and he's been a Métis leader for the last 45 years. He's retired now, but I guess people are starting to sort of recognize him as an elder. So that's how I grew up. I grew up in Ottawa, being front and centre in everything to do with uh, Indigenous rights from a political level, 
including non-status Indian rights before Bill C-31. And there was a lot of interaction between the National Indian Brotherhood, which is now the AFN, the Native Council of Canada, and the Inuit Tepirisat of Canada at the time. I grew up in the city, and I had always felt this affinity to the land or need to be on the land somehow, and I just didn't know how to do that. I was disconnected from the Métis community that my ancestry comes from, which is called Black St. Anne in Alberta, because of the fact that we moved to Ottawa so that my dad could lobby the government. So it took a while, but I began by painting these mukluks that I had seen with beadwork on it, and I grew up around things like that all the time you know, beaded things and moccasins, mukluks, mitts, gloves, everything. So I just decided one day that I'd like to try and paint it. And through that process, I really learned that I didn't know anything about plants and I didn't know anything about beadwork. Well, certainly not enough about it to be able to do it justice. So that started me on this lifelong quest for finding out more. And doing that meant that the minute I went into wanting to find out more, I started paying attention to everything that grows. I would be bending down, looking at plants, introducing myself to plants, greeting the plants, and asking them how they grew, and really trying to connect with them. And through that, it ended up being very obvious that they were the teacher and I became the student. And there are so many insects and the way that everything is connected together, entire ecosystems, and everything that they give to human beings There's a philosophy that says that plants are considered our first family, and that's because they are our relatives, they have spirits, but more than that, we need them to survive in this world. We need the trees, we need them to hold the soil together, we need them to do everything that they're doing, and we can't survive as human beings without them. In fact, we are the lowest of all, because we need everything else to survive and nothing needs us. Last year... Isaac Murdoch and myself were talking about wanting to do various workshops and try to find ways, basically, to transfer knowledge and traditional teachings to youth and find ways to bring youth to the land. So we decided that we would contact Erin Consmo, who is the third person in the Onaman Collective, and see if she would be interested in joining us in this. Isaac is a storyteller, a traditional knowledge keeper, and a traditional arts practitioner. Erin is probably the most contemporary artist of the three of us. She works for the Native Youth Sexual Health Network, as well as her and I are both on the National Collective of Walking with Our Sisters. I really respect her art. She does stencil art, but she also incorporates some traditional materials like birch bark into her art. I mostly do paintings in acrylic. We just started with a whole bunch of ideas. We wanted to research traditional paint, which is called onaman, and that's where the word onaman comes from. It's the paint that is found on rock painting, but it's also found on sacred items, and people have been using it across North America for thousands of years. There's evidence that it's been in use at least for 13,000 years, if not more. So we wanted to find out about the paint. We wanted to bring that back as a practice for people to use body and face paint because this is something that we still see within indigenous nations throughout South America and Central America, but in North America in particular, that practice seems to have been lost and we wanted to find out why and then we wanted to bring that back because putting the earth on our bodies 
is significant in the sense that it connects us directly to the earth, but there's also very much a spiritual component to that or a ceremonial component to that. And so we wondered, how are we doing as Indigenous people, as human beings, if we practiced that for 13,000 years and then all of a sudden stopped in the last 150 years? What does that do to us as nations? And it's just an open-ended question that we kind of have. So we wanted to find these ways to do all of these activities that we had in mind, like the Language House, for example. Last spring, in March, we had our first one. So I opened up my house. We had seven youth come in that stayed for four days straight. No English was allowed in the house. And we just wanted to have an Ojibwe immersion language house because there's so many youth who are desperate to learn the language and to learn the traditional ways. All these things have been lost or not lost. I won't say lost because nothing is ever really lost. But certainly the language has been suppressed. The language has been oppressed and the language has been almost outlawed. And it was at one time, in the sense that survivors from residential schools have told stories that they were not allowed to speak their language when they went to residential schools. And we all know of the horror of what happened in residential schools. So the loss of the language nationwide, languages, I should say, has been happening for quite some time. And we're at the point now where mathematically, when we look into the future, it seems unlikely that many communities will retain their languages. This is, it's shocking and it's sad. So there's many projects that we're working on together that all have to do with language, land, connection to land, elders, youth, and trying to give the youth everything that we possibly can to put them into a position to be really well-educated, well-rounded leaders in a traditional sense, not in the Western sense of education. Tell me more about why focusing on language is such a crucial, crucial thing to do. Well, I'm not a language speaker, I'm a language learner. But from what little bit that I do know, the words are not simple translations. You can't translate between English and Anishinaabemowin, which is the word for Ojibwe language. You can't translate between those perfectly because the words are more like concepts. So within the words, they break down to sounds. And within each sound, it relates to something like the earth, for example. So the word for earth is a key. So sometimes when there's a sound in a word, like ah, or it has the a key in there, it would suggest a connection to that land. From what I understand, all of the language is land-based. So you get words that are, they all have to do with relationship to the land. Encoded within the language are the protocols on how to live in balance with the earth. And so it's not just for sentimental value that you want to keep the languages alive. There's a very practical reason for wanting these languages to be kept alive and practiced and spoken. And it's of benefit not just to the people who speak the language or to the nations that have these languages, but it's of benefit to the rest of the world because within the languages, the traditional knowledge is the foundation of the languages themselves. So that traditional knowledge of how to live in balance with the earth is very crucial especially with what we're seeing happening today with the destruction of the earth, which is almost becoming so disturbingly normalized that oil spills hardly even raise red flags anymore. The largest contributor to radiation in the Great Lakes comes from Elliott Lake, from the uranium mines that were opened there, and it still contributes to that because the tailings ponds from there have not been properly dealt with. They're still leaking and they're still getting into the water system. And these are very real threats. 
Tell me more about the significance of your approach to language learning and traditional knowledge learning and how that's different from the kind of approach you might find in a more mainstream classroom type setting. It's a verb-based language, so it means that it's an action-based language. So there are words for nouns, but the nouns cannot be spoken of unless it's in reference to how you use that particular object or how the object is being used by something alive. So it's a whole different way to wrap your head around thinking. So it's really important with the language because it is a verb-based language and because it's an action-based language and because it has the traditional knowledge encoded into it that a more holistic approach is taken to learning the language. You have to have practical, hands-on experience. You learn it better that way. So when you're learning how to scrape hides, for example, the names for the tools or the processes of how to do something makes a lot more sense and it becomes part of your body memory when you're actually doing the hard work to scrape the hide because it is hard work. Or when you're picking medicines, for example, or plants, the protocols are there for how to pick them with respect, but then there's also the hard work involved in doing it. And so when you're doing it and you have the language come in at the same time, you never forget it. Also, having the elders there is really important because the elders, they're the connection, they're the bridge to those protocols and that old way and all of that traditional knowledge. And so they are able to teach it in a way that's really grounded also learning with everyone together rather than being an individual in a classroom and then going away from a two-hour class. You're learning together. You're forcing yourself to speak it, especially in immersion, because if you're not a language speaker, like I'm not a language speaker, it really challenges me to, you know, use, actually use what little bit that I know and to pronounce things, even if I'm not pronouncing it well. I have to try my best to use the language. Otherwise, I can't communicate at all. So learning in a house, living together, cooking together, eating together, waking up together has been a really good experience. It sort of, I don't know, fast tracks the learning in a way. Even though four days isn't enough, it still was better than just being in a class for a couple hours. And tell me more about the language house specifically, about how it worked. In the morning, we would get up, we would make breakfast, make coffee, tea, get everything ready, and then we had language speakers or language teachers, people who are actually language educators, scheduled to come in at different times. So they would come in and spend time with the learners. We had notebooks and we had things like that because we wanted to make sure that we were taking notes and getting as much as we could. People had their audio recorders on because getting the pronunciation is really important. They would come in and they would do things like play games with us, tell us stories, cook with us, make bannock with us, and get us to do things. And in the downtimes when they weren't around, we, you know, muddled through as best we could as, as learners. And we tried to do things like bead together or play cards together, all in the language. During the outreach process in the lead up to the language house, what kind of reactions did you get from the youth that you were hoping would be participants in the language house and also from the communities more broadly? The idea for the language house came from Calcium Rivers, who lives on the West Coast. He's from BC and he set up a language house there between him and two other people and they lived in that house for six months. They did have English spoken in the house, but for many hours of the day, they tried their best to be in full immersion. 
he's a language teacher now, and I spoke to him to see what worked for him, what didn't work for him, and to try and get some ideas. He sent me some resources ahead of time, which was really great. So he was really supportive, and then as soon as we put it together, we sent it out on social media, and we got a number of people who said that they wanted to come. We got more people wanting to register than we could accommodate, which is unfortunate. And the language speakers and the language educators themselves really stepped up to help. If you don't have the speakers and the educators to come and teach, then you can't really do it well. And so it really requires kind of a community effort. And so people came from different First Nations in the region. They came to the house and they brought resources or, you know, they just came to speak to the learners. And that community type of effort was really well received. Everyone who participated, whether a speaker, a learner, or just a visitor, could really see the benefits of what we were doing. Tell me about some of the other events that the collective has been involved with. Right now, we're still in Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, building a canoe with youth there, right from the very, <laughs> very scratch. So that means harvesting all the materials and even making tools and building the canoe from start to finish in the community, the birch bark canoe. And it's been, you know, a month-long process, and that doesn't even include getting all the birch, which was a couple weeks in and of itself. When you take youth out on the land, and there's a million mosquitoes and black flies, and you're going through the bush, and you've got sticks in your hair, and you're sweating, and it's hot, but you still have to cover up because of all the bugs and you have to walk through the bush looking for birch bark and testing each tree because not every piece of birch bark can be used for the canoe. It has to be a certain thickness. It can't be falling apart. So you have to test each tree, and out of every hundred trees, you may find one that's good to use. And then, you know, you're taking youth out there who have never been out there and done that kind of work before. Not only are they gaining the traditional knowledge, but there's people there who are speaking the language, so they're gaining the language they're actually doing the work, the hands-on work, and they're getting the protocol because you have to learn how to take the birch off the tree so that the tree remains alive. You have to learn how to put your tobacco down, how to say thank you for that. You have to learn when you're taking things like spruce roots that you're not taking everything from one tree so that you're not killing the tree. You have to take a little bit and move on. Even though it may be easier to take it all from one spot, you can't. You need to move on. You can't take everything from one spot, otherwise they won't continue to grow there. And there is a larger teaching about that where even when you're picking berries, you don't pick everything out of one spot. You pick a little and then you move on. You keep moving and you keep taking a little bit at a time because you need to leave enough behind for the bears, for the insects, for the birds, and just out of sheer respect for the plant itself, you have to leave some things behind and keep moving. And so that type of knowledge, which is really basic knowledge, it comes from a very old place of knowing how to live in balance on the earth, is something that's put into practical use, hands-on use. You can sit in a classroom all day and talk about harvesting birch bark and even show pictures and videos. It is nowhere near the experience of actually having to do it yourself. And once you've done it yourself, then that becomes yours. It becomes yours to use and yours to understand and yours then to impart to somebody else, maybe in the future. And so teaching youth with hands-on experience like that, giving them a well-rounded education, making sure that the language and the traditional knowledge is all a part of what they're learning, means that that knowledge then becomes theirs. 
and maybe in the future there'll be young people that they'll take out to learn and they'll have all of this richness to be able to pass on to the next generation. We've also had constellation ceremonies where it's storytelling mixed with ceremony and all teachings on the constellations. Last year we had the Anaman gathering or Kendagazit. We learned about the paint, the Anaman paint itself. We had a ceremony which was a gathering but also information, I suppose, for the community and to try and revive the practice of painting ourselves with the sacred paint. Then also we are having in September, it's called the Painted Hand Ceremony. We're having a gathering to feast the historic alliances between the Anishinaabek, the Cree, the Métis, and the Nakoda. Also recognizing the alliances that came after with the Lakota and the Haudenosaunee people. So we are finding that a lot of the gatherings that we're organizing really have many different components to it. So there's always an educational component to it. There's a ceremonial component to it. It involves elders. It involves youth. It involves trying really just to put pieces back together and inspire people. We're doing all of this without government funding, without any kind of funding. And so we have to fundraise to make it happen. We really want to make sure that everything that we do, we're giving the youth the best possible, well-rounded information from as many different sources. There's a lot of people who are still carriers of oral history and oral tradition, and those are the people that have that old knowledge that we want to make sure that is not lost. So we're taking time to interview elders and then bring youth with us to do that. We're taking time to make sure the youth are learning about everything that we're doing. And we're trying to organize as many different workshops and as many different gatherings as we possibly can to connect the youth with these oral historians and also traditional knowledge keepers, ceremonial people, and bringing the youth on the land as much as possible so that they can regain some of those connections to the old ways of understanding how to respect the earth, understanding how to respect the waters. How does the collective fund this work? The interesting thing is that we didn't wait for funding. We didn't have any funding. We ended up fundraising online by selling paintings and asking for donations. That's how we raised the funds to be able to give some of the language speakers and educators a little bit of donia to be able to pay for their gas. We tried to do everything we could to make it community-driven. We certainly would accept funding for things that we're doing because that would mean more youth that we would be able to reach and more things that we would be able to do. But finding funding models that we can fit into are difficult because the funding models are geared towards careers, really. And there's not a lot of funding for Indigenous languages, for example. There's, I don't know how many, I think there's 1.9 billion is what they just put into official languages, English and French, just recently, Heritage Canada did saying how important it was that English and French continue in the country. But there's nowhere near that kind of effort being put into Indigenous languages, and Indigenous languages are the ones that are threatened. So it's really difficult to find funding sources that support the kind of holistic learning that we want to do. So we would have to have, I don't know how you measure success. How do you measure success? How can you gauge what the youth has gone away with? Because some of these things that they're learning, they may not think it as being important now. 
But when they get older, they'll remember, oh, yeah, I remember doing that. I remember being out there. I remember this word. I remember this protocol. And those things are things that make them feel whole and connected to their own nation and proud as Indigenous people. And so you can't really measure those things. So it becomes really difficult to fit into existing funding formulas. But certainly we would accept funding from different sources. We would not accept funding from industry, though, unless it was green technology or something like that. But we sure wouldn't accept funding from anything like Energy East or anything like that, TransCanada. So far, we've just asked for donations. We've funded it out of our own pockets, mainly. So we've worked at different things, each one of us, Aaron, Isaac, and myself, and then almost recycled that money back into the projects that we're doing. I've put some of my paintings for sale or for auction on Facebook and uh, raised funds that way. We have a t-shirt that we're selling through Teespring, which is an online t-shirt company. We've done that to raise funds that way. And we've just basically asked for funds. We've recently gotten a grant from the Ontario Arts Council for a specific project for next summer, which is to bring youth together with elders to go to pictograph sites and then to create art in the afternoon using a variety of traditional and contemporary materials for four days next summer. But that's a small grant to do that. Certainly, we don't have any kind of operational funding or anything like that. It's all very low-key, very much funded by our desires to make things happen and see it happen and do whatever it takes to make it happen. So what kinds of things does the collective have coming up? Yeah, we have three major things coming up in the next six months. We've got, first of all, September 12th is our Painted Hand Ceremony and Gathering in Serpent River First Nation. And that is the alliance gathering between the Métis, the Crees, the Nakoda, and the Anishinaabek. And then we have, in November, we have our second language house, which will be another four days of no English, just Anishinaabemowin immersion. And then in December, we're having a youth gathering called Enoch de Gawain, which is focusing on traditional governance. So we're going to be talking about and researching and having knowledge keepers and elders come in to talk to us about the clan systems, about the traditional ways of governing traditional laws, but also looking at how those could be applied today in the current structures or envisioning new structures for the future, new governance structures for the future for communities. And so it's really exciting that we're doing these three things. And then in the winter, again, we have other things planned. (laughs) There's a lot. Yeah, we've got at least a year planned ahead. You have been listening to my interview with Christy Belcourt, a Métis artist and a member of the Onaman Collective. We've been talking about their work using land-based art activities as a focus for Anishinaabe youth to learn language and traditional knowledge. To learn more about their work, go to christybelcourt.com and click on the link on the sidebar marked The Onaman Collective. That's christybelcourt.com and the Onaman Collective. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 